Hello everyone, Adam Wilson here, and welcome to the Compass of Power. I say place is politics. That is, much of what we see described as partisan or ideological political battles are, deep down, really clashes between the rival cultures of different places. That is absolutely true when it comes to guns in the United States. I don't think I have to spend much time proving to you how people in different parts of the United States see guns differently. We've talked about this in previous episodes if you do want more of an explainer, but I think we all understand it. However, national pressure has been building to change laws regulating guns, primarily due to the increasing number of school shootings. In this episode, I'm taking a whole new approach. I'm going to demonstrate the importance of regional culture by showing how those differences can be completely steamrolled. That is, we're going to talk about how stark cultural differences can be overridden over time, whether they are differences about having a few and getting behind the wheel, or who should be able to buy an AR-15. So please sit back, buckle up, and let me be your designated driver in our short tour through the history of drunk driving and the mothers who were against it. best place and time to begin our tour is January 8, 1918, when, of all places, Mississippi became the first state to vote in favor of banning all alcohol. Over the next few years, every state's going to vote in favor of a constitutional amendment at the federal level to completely prohibit alcohol. Only Connecticut and Rhode Island are going to vote against this idea. This is the prohibition. Now, the prohibition may be later remembered as a time of rum-running gangsters uh, and the invention of NASCAR, but it did drop alcohol use. And this is when legal drinking in the United States went to essentially zero. It was, if you were drinking, that was illegal. It was spurred by over-drinking. There was a drinking problem in the United States prior to prohibition, but it was also driven by an undercurrent of anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic feeling during a huge immigration surge. By 1929, the Great Depression shows up, and that changes everything. First of all, nobody's had any legal booze for nine years. Also, we just lost our jobs. And also, there's no more immigration, because why would you immigrate to a country where there's no jobs and no booze? So by 1933, alcohol is back. We pass another constitutional amendment, which is not easy to do, by the way, and that allows alcohol again, just in time for World War II. That runs from 1941 to 1945 for the United States. As soon as it's over, the baby boom kicks in. And this is really important when we think about our relationship with alcohol. In 1946, people are home. They start having kids. The middle class is doing great. And we have tons of children everywhere. In 1955, we get involved in a conflict in Vietnam. By 1964, we've reached the end of the baby boom. The first babies born in 46 are now 18 and subject to the draft. Also, can't vote. Voting age, 21. 1969 is the peak of U.S. presence in the Vietnam War. And it's an interesting year in a lot of ways. 
but among them is that they introduced the M16 as a standard U.S. military rifle, which is a variation of the Armalite AR-15, which we're going to be hearing about later. Legal drinking across the U.S. Most of the landmass, that is, if you looked at a map, you pretty much have to be 21 everywhere, except for a, a noticeable clump in the middle. The prairie states, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, and also a handful of northern states, Wisconsin, Ohio, West Virginia, New York, Maine, those folks have drinking ages under 21. And in the South, that includes Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. And it's interesting to note that Mississippi was the first in on prohibition and also had a lower than average drinking age. 1971. We're moving on. We pass another amendment to the Constitution, lowering the voting age from 21 to 18. And you gotta figure... From my perspective, this has a lot to do with Vietnam and the draft and sending kids or adults somewhere between kid and adults in that 18, 19, 20 period uh, off to a war and they can't vote and they can't drink at home. By 1973, we have left Vietnam. And surprisingly, uh, by 1975, we've reached like an all-time low in the age at which you have to be to drink. What you're seeing now is that the map by 1975, uh, you, you've got holdouts at 21. Now most places are letting you go and have a beer at 18, 19. Uh, but the West Coast, that's Oregon, Washington, California, you still have to be 21. Nevada, Utah, North Dakota, Missouri, Arkansas, Indiana, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania. Those are the places where you still have to be 21. So if you're looking at the map, what you see is that the a big chunk of the West Coast is holding out and you still have to be older than voting age to get a beer. Uh, but you do have some uh, higher restrictions right in the dead center, kind of surrounding Illinois. And here's where we get to a little a shift in the politics, a dramatic shift in the politics. So far, drinking's gone from being completely illegal to illegal until you're a little older, to, well, there's a war and we've changed when you can vote and we're trying to align drinking and voting and going to war as some sort of complete adulthood. But May 3rd, 1980, Kari Leitner, a 13-year-old girl, is killed by an intoxicated driver in Fair Oaks, California. The driver had already been arrested for another DUI hit and run and he left the girl's body right there at the scene. Four months later, 1980, Mothers Against Drunk Driving is founded by Candace Candy Leitner, Kari's mother. Mad's goal, as they're known, is to eliminate drunk driving, or, as we would know it, uh, driving under the influence of alcohol, DUI. Today, the goal is still to end drunk driving. Their tagline today on their website is, no more victims. It's worth noting that Mad's goal is not specifically to end all traffic deaths or prohibit using alcohol. What they want to eliminate is the act of driving under the influence. This movement was not about some of the things that come to top of mind. If, like, What are the alternative approaches to taking on uh, drunk driving and fatalities? Well, they're not going to allow taverns to move closer to neighborhoods where people live so they don't have to drive to the bar. It's not about mass transit. And again, it's not about banning alcohol or suing the beer makers. At its core, MAD was about making it a crime to combine drinking alcohol with driving a car. 
And that's a campaign that's going to absolutely change American life. Let's stop and realize that MAD comes from a place of the deepest loss. It's powered by mothers who lost their children. One of Candy Leitner's enduring quotes is, Death by drunk driving is the only socially acceptable form of homicide. And in the 1980s, many children were lost to drunk driving. 1982, there are more than 21,000 alcohol-related traffic fatalities in a nation of 233 million people. We're going to keep an eye on the population because you're going to see some changes in those numbers. 82, 53% of traffic fatalities are alcohol-related. That's that is At least one of the drivers and or occupants has a blood alcohol concentration, the BAC, of 0.08 or above. 35% of the drivers involved in fatal crashes had a BAC of 0.08 or above. So we're talking more than half of all traffic fatalities have alcohol involved somehow. More than a third of all drivers involved had uh, a BAC of 0.08 or above. 1983, the next year, a television movie comes out about Lightner, and it garners a lot of publicity for MAD, and the membership shoots up. And at this point, we're starting to see some states raise their drinking ages back to 21. Uh, New Mexico, Tennessee, and Illinois have all gone to 21, while a few of the states who used to have a, a legal drinking age of 18 have gone up to 19. So if you're looking at a map, what used to be a big block of got to be old to drink West Coast and then a little block of got to be 21 to drink right dab smack in the middle of the country around uh, Illinois and uh, Indiana, that's growing. 1984, this is Reagan's re-election year, Congress approves MAD's greatest desire, its biggest legislative success. This is a federal law, the National Minimum Drinking Age Act. That is, it introduces a penalty. You lose federal highway dollars if you do not raise the minimum legal age for drinking to 21. This goes to court. By 1987, the U.S. Supreme Court upholds that law in South Dakota v. Dole. Now, uh, I've talked in previous episodes that when I was growing up, I grew up in North Idaho, right on the border of Washington, Eastern Washington State. And I can remember the line of cars coming into Idaho from Washington during that period, because there's two universities there, one for each side of the border. But on one side of the border, you have to be 21 to drink, other side, 18, 19. That little period in the 80s completely shaped uh, uh, the area where I grew up, and it's a period of shaking out in the United States that's settled, interestingly, by the South Dakota v. Dole case. And let's note that South Dakota has consistently had a lower than 21 uh, drinking age since we got into this like era of the, the Vietnam changes and changing the age uh, of voting. 1988... One year after that uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision, every state and the District of Columbia have made the adjustments. You have to be 21 to buy alcohol anywhere in the U.S., except for Puerto Rico and Guam, interestingly. By 1991, now we have 16,000 alcohol-impaired traffic fatalities, down from 21,000 in 82. 1997, by this point, every state has established a maximum blood alcohol content of 0.1. One by this point. The proportion of crash fatalities that are alcohol related has fallen from 53%, that was in 82, 
to 34% in 97. The proportion of drivers with that BAC involved in fatal crashes has decreased from 35% in 82 to 20% in 1997. And it's going to stay at or near these levels for the next eight years and kind of bump around through the late 90s and early 2000s. Now a new current's going to form. 99, and the nation is rocked by Columbine High School Massacre. 11 students and one teacher are killed, 21 people injured, everyone is horrified. Two years later, in 2001, the 9-11 attacks happen. And uh, the U.S. enters another very long period of war. In this case, we're going to go to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And by the way, our standard issue military rifle is still based on the AR-15. By 2005, all states have now lowered the maximum blood alcohol content from 0.1 to 0.08, where it stands for the most part today. 2007, 13,000 alcohol-impaired driving fatalities. That's down 40% from 82. The next year, by 2008, uh, I think this is a report by the Traffic Safety Commission, which we've been quoting for some of this, uh, stops and looks at the prevalence of driving under the influence, 82 to 2005. It credits the drop in DUI fatalities to tougher federal and state laws on drinking ages and the BAC. Here's a quote. These alcohol programs and laws served as a general deterrent to all those who drink and drive by sending a message that the states were getting tougher on impaired driving, and hence, these efforts made people think twice about getting behind the wheel after they had been drinking. Importantly, I'm emphasizing this because they are talking about legal penalties leading to social change. It also mentions three completely non-punitive reasons for the drop in DUI-related crashes, one of which is a decreasing portion of the population aged 18 to 34. That's because the baby boomers are now all grown-ups, and uh, they're watching 30-something. Actually, yeah, actually past, no, they're past 30-something. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, baby boomers are getting older, you have fewer young people, and young people are more likely to drink and drive. There's an increasing proportion of licensed female drivers. Female drivers are generally much less likely to drink and drive than men. I think that's still true. It was certainly true in uh, 2005. Uh, and you did see a small, small reduction in per capita alcohol consumption. I'd love to get into whether or not alcohol consumption per capita has gone up, because I suspect it has, given the amount of marketing I see. But let's move along and point out that the other trend we're tracking now, the school shootings trend continues along. And in the same year that this report comes out, 27 people are shot at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb. 2012, December 14, Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. 20 children between six and seven years old are shot and killed another six adult staff. The next day, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is founded by Shannon Watts in Indianapolis, Indiana. It starts as a Facebook uh, group page. I think it's called One Million Moms for Gun Control. By the end of 2013, it has 130,000 members and chapters in all 50 states. The group specifically cites Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, as a model, uh, and it's different from another organization founded by the mother of a Sandy Hook victim called the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. But we're starting to see now, this is truly grassroots organizations starting to form around the intolerable loss of children. 
2013, Every Town for Gun Safety is formed when Michael Bloomberg's Mayors Against Illegal Guns merges with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense. 2016, now we have 10,500 alcohol-impaired driving fatalities, which is down 50% from 1982. The national population has increased by nearly 100 million people in that time. The population of the United States has gone up by like 40% in this time period. So we're not talking about a per capita reduction in DUI fatalities. We're not talking about how many crashes per 100,000 people. We're saying the raw number of DUI fatalities has been cut in half even while the population's booming. However, in the 2016-17 school year, 42 students and staff were violently killed on campus, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. 2019. An estimated 885,000 Americans are arrested for DUI. 2021, we withdraw American troops from Afghanistan. 2022, Uvalde, Texas. An 18-year-old gunman opens fire at his former elementary school, killing 21 people, 19 students, and two teachers, wounding 17 others. The parents of the murdered children testify before Congress. Congress passes the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the first major federal gun legislation in 30 years. And that brings us to 2023, the present day. What happens this year? The Covenant school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. Three students, three adults killed. The Washington Post reports that there have been 380 school shootings since Columbine. Washington State, my state, along with some others, are starting to pass bans on what's being called assault weapons. That is, the weapons modeled after the AR-15, which made its debut as the M-16, if you'll remember, all the way back in 1969. And we saw this lead-in from the Washington Post just last week. <clears throat> Quote, In firearm-friendly Texas, two Republicans on a House committee helped advance a bill to raise the minimum age to buy an AR-15-style weapon. In Tennessee, a Republican governor known for championing looser gun laws has called a special legislative session to consider tighter ones to, quote, strengthen the safety, end quote, of the state. In North Carolina, the GOP-dominated legislature dropped a proposal to allow gun owners to carry concealed weapons without a permit. In several capitals across Red America, gun control advocates say they are seeing faint, if sometimes fleeting, fissures in what has long been staunch Republican opposition to any whiff of firearms restriction. How did we get here? I would say, reference to the history I just laid out. This is not a sudden shift, but a historic turn decades in the making. It's powered by grieving mothers and grieving fathers and people just outraged by the loss of children. Every single shooting adds to the ranks. Elected leaders that have not, they just have not been able to stop or even slow down school shootings. I have personally had conversations with folks who are talking about whether specifically banning this sort of barrel or that kind of stock or this feature on a gun has any relevance to stopping insane people from attacking children. And I understand that there may not be a direct correlation, but at this point, the grieving, the mourning, the mothers they've taken aside, 
people have formed up and they have picked their focus area and their demands are becoming harder and harder for any politician to resist. And note that this year, Washington also considered a proposal to follow Utah's lead and lower the legal uh, blood alcohol content limit from 0.08 to 0.05. Opponents of that idea said it would essentially mean you cannot have a single drink and still drive, which I think MAD is probably fine with. We never know in the present whether we're done living out the campaigns of the past. So let's wrap this up. I hope this timeline has demonstrated two truths. First, there are differences in the cultures of the United States. Those cultures include thoughts about what we drink, where we drink, and how we feel about drinking and driving. They include how many guns we have, the types of guns we have, what we use them for, and how we feel about them. Second, the political force that can build over the loss of children is far more powerful than those cultural differences. People who have lost loved ones for what seems like an unreasonable or unjust reason will take action in any democracy, especially when the people who have been lost are children and women are allowed to vote. We should remember that it's only been a 100 years since mothers have been able to vote in the United States, and the history of mothers against drunk driving, I think, includes big changes in American society, including changing our federal laws, our state laws. That history gives us some clues about what to expect when it comes to stopping school shootings. MAD chose a focus area. It was specifically dedicated to making it illegal to both drink and drive. And the group has never given up on the issue ever since. I would venture to say that many of the parents and activists alarmed by school shootings have already picked their focus area, and that is restricting access to guns. Furthermore, I would argue that the political tide has already shifted. We are at an inflection point similar to 1983, when DUI deaths were very high and the unmet political demand for change was also very high. Following that came federal laws, which were challenged and upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, that led to a rewrite of all state laws, which also subsequently withstood challenges. The ultimate result was a dramatic drop in DUI fatalities, lives saved. And we got an entire industry of lawyers who defend hundreds of thousands of people every year whose lives are changed when they are charged with violating those laws. That's a short history of drunk driving and how it applies to the future history of gun legislation. I hope you enjoyed it. Tell your family, tell your friends. We'll be back again.